you can break people into two different categories. One are the really entrepreneurialistic risk takers mm-hmm. and those people who want surety. Those people that want surety call up a dealer, hey, I want that lathe, I want that automatic, I want it delivered to my place, and I want it up and running, and I want you to warranty it. And, and there is a real marketplace for that. But then you get into these people who love the auction sale. They, there's an allure, there's a psychological allure of being able to buy something, uh, potentially potentially buy something and get a bargain on it, even though that they're assuming some risk. And, and, and the auction industry's been around for a very, very, very long time. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, and I'm here with my co-host, Lloyd Graff. Today, we're talking industrial auctions. Our guest is longtime auctioneer Robert Levy, president of Robert Levy Associates. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graff. P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. I guess we can just start by asking, what is what is Robert Levy Associates? Well, I've been in the industrial auction and valuation business my entire career, which is about 40 years. And my most recent iteration is Robert Levy Associates, which specializes in assisting companies in figuring out what their value is, how to monetize assets, predominantly industrial and commercial assets. So I, I basically help companies figure out what to do when, when it's time to, time to sell assets. Uh, Robert, give us a little history as far as uh, how you began in this business your several different companies uh, in a quick synopsis. Well, I, I joined my father back in uh, 1980 at Norman Levy Associates, which was a pleasure. Uh, unfortunately, I only had an opportunity to work with him for about three years. He passed away in 1983. Uh, about six months, or about, no, about 18 months into my, my um, job with my dad, um, I moved to London to, to run our offices overseas. Built up a pretty nice business over there. Um, And then when my father passed away in 1983, I I needed to return back to Detroit, where um, with some help of some very, very good people that were in the company that my dad had acquired uh, for a long period of time. What was the name of the company? Uh, It was Norman Levy Associates. And uh, uh, we built, my brother and I and some good people built that organization from about two offices to... uh, an international conglomerate of about 11 offices with about 110 people. Wow. We were running about 
100, 150 sales per year globally uh, with sales around $100 million a year. And at that time, that was that was significant. That was very significant. And then in um, 2000, well, actually a little bit before that, when we saw the Internet bubble percolating, uh, we had decided that it would be a good thing to um, grow our business um, by aligning ourselves with a company that had uh, a parallel footprint, a geographic footprint, but uh, had some additional um, verticals or asset categories that we did, but we didn't specialize in. So we ended up through a series of companies, we, we ended up doing a transaction with DoveBid. We sold our company in 2000 to DoveBid, which uh, my brother and I stayed there for about two, uh, four years. We had four-year employment contracts. I was president of international operations, and I was on the board of directors. Can you tell us how that, much you sold it for, out of curiosity? You don't have to. Uh, yeah, back then it was a lot of money. It was um, We sold for about $30 million. And um, um, stayed there for about four years until... Um, we parted. I think it was a mutual agreement that we were parting. And then I left to go to um, Hilco as president, CEO, and partner. They had a, a small division in the industrial side. They were probably running about uh, maybe four to six sales per year. And, and the owner of, uh, of Hilco, who had brought me business over the years, um, wanted to build an auction company. So I, I agreed to join him. Was there a hiatus between uh, leaving DoveBid and going to Hilco? Uh, yeah, about a weekend. <laughs> oh, that's a <all>. weekend. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't any meaningful period of time. Um, uh, once I had decided to um, to make that move to Hilco, it was I was all in, and it was actually at the beginning it was a very very wonderful experience for me because as I was living the the Dove experience. I was watching the old company that, that we had built. We had wonderful employees that were with us for about 110 employees that were with us for between 15 and 25 years each person. And that represents some significant know-how, loyalty, product knowledge. Uh, everybody hits the ground running, and they were a wonderful, wonderful team. And and as, as the Dove bid um, creation it began to manifest its true characteristics. A lot of my people uh, that were at Norman Levy Associates decided that they could no longer work under those circumstances and departed. Was DoveBid only online? Uh, they did online. They did webcast auction sales, predominantly online and webcast auction sales, and some liquidations and some private treaty sales. But what they do were you mean predominantly by webcast sales. Like webcast sales were uh, simulcast live outcry okay. auction sales that were broadcast using the internet. Live and internet. Very, very, yeah, it was a, a very, very uh, new, wonderful technology that I, I particularly gravitated to because I thought it was the best technology out there. It was a, what we point, call. Uh, Robert, at that point, had Dove sold out to the British firm? No, no. This was this was years before that. Okay. This was years. This is uh, this is on their rise. This is where they were. They had raised a lot of money through a group of investors, very what large companies. What years are you talking? This is 2000, uh, 2000. Okay. This is nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one. But we had sold in March of two thousand, and uh, they were on the rise, and they were 
Uh, my job there was to integrate, to go and acquire international companies and, and integrate them into the uh -huh. DoveBid uh, company. Okay, so but then I had, you went to Hilco. And so I went to Hilco uh, as president and partner, uh, re-energized to the industrial auction place. I had a, a new challenge, which I really enjoyed, which was building a new auction company, taking a very, very small company and building it into something that was meaningful. And it took us a few years, but we were very successful in uh, establishing the infrastructure that I was used to working with and demonstrating our ability to deliver and, uh, our performance, uh, which we did. And I, I had recruited some very, very good people, some, some exceptional people from the old Norman Levy people had joined me and, and uh, we built a pretty incredible infrastructure. Uh, it took us about seven or eight years, uh, and then we were back on top of the, back on top of the charts again. Probably is the number one player in the industrial space on an international basis. And then, uh, how long uh, did the Hilco uh, affiliation last? I was there for about thirteen years. Built that company with, with Steve into a major, major corporation. We were running. Probably 150, in excess of 150 uh, auctions a year, uh, hundreds of millions. In our best year, I think we 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 reached over a billion dollars in sales. We were we did all of the automotive restructuring work. We sold about 90 98 percent of all of the uh, automotive facilities that closed between 2008 and 2011. Wow. GM, Chrysler, Ford, and uh, just about all of them. So that brings up an interesting uh, question. Excuse me for interrupting, but mm -hmm. uh, is the auction business better when you have a major upheaval like the 2008 deep recession, or is it better when things are moving upwards? It's not an easy question, but I'll, I'll give you some insight into what I've experienced over 40 years. Typically, the auction industry is better when the economy is on the rise. Mm -hmm. um, you have fewer transactions. However, the value of assets is sound and frequently increasing, as opposed to a down economy where you are faced with more sales, more volume of assets being sold. However, the, the value is also decreasing and it's harder to, to, uh, to assess those values. But when there is a major industry-specific transition, we find that at the very, very beginning, the first companies to hit the market typically recover a higher rate of return on their assets than the third, fourth, and fifth until the marketplace right sizes again, and then it begins to rebound. So when we began the automotive work back at the end of, 2000, uh, end of 2008, beginning 2009, uh, there were other factors that were, were affecting selling prices. That was probably the worst time to be selling anything. And then for about a 12-month period, 24-month uh, period, we saw the value of the same equipment increase dramatically. This is um, what year? This was 2009, 2010. We saw the values of those assets increase dramatically. In some instances, multiples of 10 times. So that was a very interesting period of time. In in the past, did you like to buy out the company and then 
sell it off yourself or, or do guarantees or do commissions? What, what, did, what have you historically liked to do and have you seen the, the pattern change, the paradigm change in the industry? Yeah, yeah. So, so I like all three. Um, I, I like to be able to, <laughs> you know, if, if I can buy right, that's a good thing. What we see is, and, and I've always been very, very transparent with my clients, that the, the way they will achieve the highest selling price and the most money in their own pockets is by hiring us to run a fee-based transaction or pay us a commission. Of course, they assume the risk. They assume 100% of the risk. And in doing that, they will end up with the majority of, of the proceeds. If, if there is a low risk for, or low tolerance for risk and there is an immediate need for capital, an outright purchase or a guarantee could be a, a better way to go for them. However, in, in the case of an outright purchase, they are foregoing all of the upside and whatever they get as, as far as the outright purchase offer, that's all they're going to get. Uh, the hybrid is a guarantee uh, where there is some revenue share on the upside, mm-hmm. uh, but they're they're buying an insurance policy. And, and I will say that the people in our business are pretty savvy. Which business and, are you speaking of? Uh, I'm talking about the industrial auction business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't, we do not typically lose. Uh, sometimes we lose. We don't always make. But if you if if a seller has assets for sale, and they hire the correct company who can guide them through the process efficiently and effectively and do the job correctly, then their risk of, of not obtaining a reasonable return close to forecast is kind of small. I think that they're, I mean, I, I typically try and get buyers or, or sellers, I should say, to participate or hire, hire me on a fee because it's, it's the way they will end up with the most money. No, that's not to say that we're not happy to do a buy or a guarantee. That's the way we make the most money. But being transparent to my clients, I think it's up to them to make their decisions. And our industry is pretty competitive. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, it's not uncommon for auction companies to uh, actually pay or guarantee what they expect the assets to bring and hope for an upside. But again, it depends on the quality and the quantity of the assets and the time frame uh, and the economy for which those assets are being offered. So is it less lucrative then today if people are have to compete so hard to get a sale? Oh, margins have definitely slimmed. Um, it, it's, it's not uncommon to see multiple, multiple people, companies competing on transactions. And the margins definitely have slimmed. Um, years and years ago, Back in 1980, when I first started, there were probably five, five companies, five national firms that would compete on the larger deals. Today, there are teams of companies, and they all partner with each other. Yeah, yeah. And, and the problem, the problem with partnering together today, is that um, many firms partner for several reasons. One is bandwidth issues, and the other is the assuagement of risk. The more partners in a deal, the less likely they are going to lose a lot if they have to overpay for a deal, and they will typically be willing to pay a little bit more uh, so that they can participate in the transaction. However, the problem is when you have so many partners on a transaction, there's a a lack of coordination Hmm. 
you know, and, and who's responsible for what? And why are you partnering? What's the real reason you're partnering? You know, is it because you, you can't get the deal on your own? Or you just want to participate in a transaction. So, so what I'm, what I'm, my new business model is really geared in an advisory capacity for companies that are selling or anticipating the sale of assets, so that I can help guide them through the process of both qualifying the auction companies, bringing those auction companies in. Who I know, I know what auction company is good at what particular asset category. Um, helping the companies with the RFPs, helping the companies analyze the proposals that come in, and then helping the companies determine which which is the best proposal and who to move forward with. And in that way, I can make sure that the partnerships between the auction companies are disclosed and, and companies understand who are actually bidding on their projects. Because there are times when auction companies will partner together and they won't disclose that they are actually working together. Oh, That's really? That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Interesting. So, you know, I've, I've been in this business for a very, very long time. In my full 40 years of being here, I've had, I've had some very, very immovable rules uh, and ways and philosophical operational values and philosophies. And mine is full disclosure. You will always know what I am doing, how I'm doing it, and who I'm doing it with. But there are some companies who have said to me over the years, hey, why don't we put in two separate bids, and uh, whoever gets it will run the sale and we'll partner the deal. Uh, well, that's not a good thing. That's collusion. That's not a good thing. I, I stay as far away from that as I possibly can. All right. I want to go into a few. It, it seems like you get to do several different interesting things as an auctioneer. You've mentioned managing these companies, but it seems like you're very hands-on. You want to be on the stand. You want to evaluate the equipment. You want to get the deal. I've always been fascinated. Well, not always, but I mean, as long as I've been around the business with assessing the values. And do you, do you see being an auctioneer as sort of having a sixth sense? It's sort of a dark art in a way. Like, you know, for us, sure, we, we have our specialty in turning equipment, multi-spindles, but you have to be able to go into a shop and see a whole bunch of different types of things. Can you explain the process or what, you know, what your feelings are about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, you, you've kind of hit me on the head with the correct assessment. I love what I do. I've always been very, very uh, connected to and driven by the project, the specific projects. I was with a guy yesterday, a small deal, however, it's his company, and I've always treated every single transaction like it was my own, no matter how small or large it is. So you have to have a feeling for the individual or the company or the people within the company that is being impacted by this decision to close. Nobody built a company to sell it. You have to have a drive and you have to have an instinctual feeling about what you're going to do and the commitment you make to the seller. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, you can actually make sure that you are doing the right things from the standpoint of racking up the deal, which is assessing the value, to the site preparation, to the marketing procedures, to the conduct of sale, to the removal. And everybody has to be treated properly from the ownership and the employees to the buyers. 
And if you do that, then, then you have yourself a more successful type of situation than if you are just in it to make a bunch of money and don't really have care or thought for those people that are being impacted by it. But your question to me, I think, is how do you value so many very yeah. different What's, asset categories? Is that, it, so, I mean, it seems like some people just have it and some people don't. Is that partly it? Or you have a big it. network. That's partly it. You got to have a gut. Uh, you can walk into a into a facility and and feel like, well, this this thing feels like it's uh, two million, two and a half million, and then you go through and you got to look at every piece, and you got to inventory every piece, and you got to put down a number. You got to put. I typically put a range down, low and high, uh, and I break the assets into into their liquidity curves and figure out, you know, is this something that is a highly liquid asset or is it a very specialized asset? And and you have to do research. And there are there are specialists within industries. For example, you guys know this, you're in the screw machines and hydromat industry. Um, you guys are specialists in that particular industry. And nobody, I don't think anybody knows everything about every single asset court category that you'll see i've seen aerospace I've, I've seen defense i've seen automotive i've seen textiles i've seen woodworking i've seen transportation i've seen solar i've seen rubber plastics uh, there's there's a multitude of these and as you begin to um spend more and more time in each of these different facility types there are some commonalities however uh you definitely want to bring in people who are more tied to the specific marketplace than just somebody who's in it once every two or three years. Do you feel so like people, specialists like us, though, we, sometimes we know too much? Sometimes you do. Sometimes you know too much, and sometimes you're a little bit conservative. Um, and and you f sometimes you fail to recognize the kind of fervor that can develop in an auction situation when you have large quantities of really, really nice equipment, for example. I've, I've had many sales that uh, I, I sell a machine at an auction sale as is, where is, with all of the costs associated with removal borne by the buyers, with no warranties, sell for more money than then a buyer could buy that same machine off a used equipment dealer's floor delivered with a warranty. Right. I've heard Go you say figure. that before. You say <laughs> you've told us screw machines sell the best at auctions. That has been that has been my experience over the years that screw machines very frequently will sell for more than what a dealer can uh, sell it for off their floor. It's Not incredible. always. We, but we have customers who are just like we we've offered the exact same machine to them and they won't buy it from us and then it goes to auction and they'll pay a lot more than we were offering to to it it's just this certain psychological nature well there's there's a history of auction sales for screw machines and the buying population they're used to it it's a mature marketplace where screw machine operators frequently go to auction sales and they're used to it and they know and it's a, it's a venue it's a place for them to meet up and do business together and, and it's a social event and and yeah but and, that's and gone now thing. isn't it 
Isn't well, the social aspect is a lot of the social aspect is gone because we've shifted now from the on-site local sale to the online auction sale where people just sit in their offices at their computer screens and they bid and they click the bid. I miss, I really, really miss the days of getting up on the stand. And I love the days that I have the opportunity to do that because that's one of the things that brought me the most pleasure was getting up on the stand and selling for hours on end. <laughs> you know, it, was, it took a lot of energy, but mm-hmm. both mental and physical but it's something that I, I particularly enjoyed, and I was pretty good at it. This and I, a, I look little, forward to those days that I, that I can do it again. A little off-the-wall question, but why do you think that eBay failed as a venue for uh, selling industrial, uh, industrial equipment? equipment and individual uh, auctioneers have continued to thrive? I, I think that eBay, while they have access to a lot of people i don't think that they have access to the right people and i don't think they understand the industrial transaction they're selling other things that are highly commoditizable and while industrial machinery some is more commoditizable than others i don't think that they actually presented a platform where the typical buying population of used equipment gravitated to their site because they just i don't believe i don't feel like they ever really understood it Mm -hmm. and i I think that the the kind of high touch model first of all they don't want high touch they want complete frictionless they want people just loading stuff onto their website and if they sell it great and if they don't who cares they're getting their fees whereas the industrial auction company a more high touch model that interacts with the clients and deals with a lot of things that eBay is not set up or structured to do. You're talking about um, touching the merchandise and No, I'm talking about dealing with the clients. I'm talking about solving problems and issues, mm-hmm. uh, shipping, rigging, whether the machinery and equipment works or whether you know what kind of a condition is it in and all of that. So it's a different kind of an animal. And I don't think eBay is set up. I don't think they have the desire. I don't think they ever did have the desire to do that. So I think that's probably the biggest reason why I think they failed. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I go work with a client, I'm there with my client. I'm, I'm guiding them through the process of valuing and, and strategizing as far as how do you, how do we set up the facility? How do we lot and catalog? How do we like take winter thread rollers, for example, that are in pieces. We put them back together and we sell them, you know, as complete units rather than just a box of parts. And, and when you do that, you can actually create a lot more value. eBay's not going to do that. Of course, not many auction companies know how to do that anyway. But mm-hmm. but um, I think a, a smaller auction firm with the right staff, they know how to do it. You can interact with your client better. Yeah, I, one thing I found interesting before certain sales, it it appears that you you have a feel for how you're going to engineer that sale uh, when you're up on the stand, how you're going to guide people, how how you're going to you know, and I I know that these are these are tricks of the trade, and you can't exactly quantify this, you can't exactly explain it. Maybe maybe it's sort of something you have to hold close to the vest but i can explain it <laughs> no I, I 
my personal process is that I, I believe a couple things to hold true always. One, the auctioneer has to has to be professional, has to know what he or she is doing, and understand the assets that they are selling and know how to present those assets to the crowd in a very, very efficient and effective way. And if an auctioneer is not prepared when they get on the stand, it becomes very apparent and their credibility with the buying crowd immediately goes out the window. So you have to, as an auctioneer, you gotta do your homework. You gotta know what you're selling. You've gotta know the ordering of the lots that you're selling how you will group assets, how you will subdivide lots if, if you need to. And the only way to do that is to spend time beforehand looking at the assets. Like my process, I would always go in the day before the sale, depending on how large the sale is. I would spend as much time as I needed going through every single item, marking up my catalog with how I wanted to group lots, how I wanted to subdivide lots, how I would offer items, and what I figured the, what I would figure them for. And, and in doing that, I can actually efficiently run the auction sale without wasting a lot of time. People like auction sales, but there have been auction sales that I have watched that go on for hours and hours and hours just for the fact that the auctioneer doesn't know how to conduct an auction sale and was ill-prepared and doesn't know or didn't know at the time what the lots were. Um, how to put them together, how not to put them together, and what to do in those circumstances and situations. So sometimes you I want always, it to go fast, and sometimes you want to squeeze it out. It it just because right. if it goes too long, then people go away, people. and yeah, you lose people that way. So it's really important that you have a sense into the crowd, what the crowd is feeling. What the excitement in the crowd? Is there excitement or are we lacking excitement? Is there something that we need to do to create more excitement? And if you're if you're selling a group of items in a sale and you got nobody bidding and, and nobody's interested in those items and they're bringing far less than what they should, you've got to push through those things quicker to get to the other items. I'm not saying don't do your job. And don't, Is the excitement don't, factor dissipating now with the online sales or can you still feel the excitement even in an online sale um well i i think there can be excitement in an online sale um but it's it's more of a private kind of excitement mm -hmm. because you're sitting there in your in your office looking at a computer screen and you're going oh don't bid against me don't bid against me or i'm prepared to keep going i'm prepared to keep going and and it's not like sitting in a room full of equipment and full of buyers with an auctioneer, you know, um, yelling out bids. So I, I think there can be excitement, but I think that the power of the excitement is more localized to individual lots and not the overall uh, excitement of the sale, of the, of the event itself. Because when you're in a room, it's kind of hard to escape the auction sale. When I'm watching an, an auction sale online, I can leave my office. I can go into the bathroom and, like, it, it's I'm in the bathroom. <laughs> There's nothing else going on. Yeah. There's a, a live auction sale. It's really kind of hard to hard to escape all of the energy that's going on there. Can you tell very, us about a well. about a flop? An interesting a flop. flop. An interesting flop. Uh, I don't think I've ever had one. <laughs> <laughs> you probably even know about. Yes, one. I, I will. I will tell you. I had. I had a flop. I bought a deal, 
with another auction company. And it was in an industry that I wasn't particularly knowledgeable, knowledgeable about. But I had, I had a pretty, pretty good sense. What industry? Uh, trucking and transportation. Uh, hauling of chemicals and things. And, um, and, and when you have a, a, an industry like that and you're selling, it's like screw machines. You know, you got rows and rows and rows of screw machines. Uh, which I find interesting in your industry. And then in, in trucking and transportation, you have rows and rows and rows. So if you figure, if you figure a truck for 25,000 and you got a row of 25 of them and you're taking in 20,000 or 15,000, you're losing five to 10,000 a truck times 25. That adds up fast. <laughs> so we had, we had bought a deal where we had multiples of these vehicles. And we start the sale, and we're losing. I'm counting it up. I'm getting sick. We're counting it up. I'm five down, five down, ten down, fifteen down. 20. I'm watching these numbers mount. And there was a period of time we were down a half a million bucks. Wow. And I can tell you that I was I was very very uncomfortable at that moment. And then, and then, like auction sales do, there was another series of vehicles that we had figured for twenty thousand a piece. They were bringing thirty thousand a piece, and there were multiples. <laughs> so at the end of the day, I'll tell you, it was the best fifty thousand dollars I ever lost in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I'll just tell you a brief story that uh, David Wise, the old auctioneer in California, told sure. me, and Stan yep. Kleeman, uh-huh. uh, who worked for him, uh-huh. and Kleeman was just starting out in California. And he had eight deals, and he made money on every single one of them. Mm-hmm. So he thought that he was really hot stuff. So he went to David Wise, and he said, David, we need to work together. I've had eight deals, and I've made money in every single one of them. Mm-hmm. And David looked at Stan, and he said, Stan, not doing enough. you haven't had enough deals. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. You don't make money on every one of them. And my father used to tell me, he said, Robert, if you look at it on an individual deal by deal basis, you'll probably drive yourself crazy. You've got to look at it at the end of the day. At the end of the year, you have to total up all your deals and see if you're plus or minus. And that's that's pretty much how you have to do it. Uh, yeah, now, absolutely. And I keep yeah. I always remember that. Uh, it means yeah, if you make money on every deal, you haven't taken enough risk. Yes, yes, that's that's right. That's right. You've been way too and, conservative. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, I've been in the business for a long time, and I've I've run probably as many or more auction sales, and and been involved in as many or more deals than anybody else uh, in our industry. And predominantly, I mean, I can say that while we haven't won on every single deal, the majority of the deals that I have been in have been good deals. Uh, we've made money. Some have been phenomenal deals. Some have been okay deals. A lot of the deals that I've done bring within a few percent of our anticipated gross. Uh, there have been a few that have been um, pretty bad, but but not very often are those deals uh, mm-hmm. pretty bad. So to wind this up, which way are we headed? With the web, is this going to ultimately ring the entrepreneurial risk factor out of the auction business or is it going to stay somewhat 
the same over the next 10 years, do you think? I think we will continue to see a migration away from live auction sales, to my chagrin. I love live auction sales. I think I don't think they're going to go away, but I think we will see a, a continued migration away from live auction sales to the online sales. Uh, I think that as long as the economy is is sound and good, and people have money to buy, I think that people will forget bad auction sales and continue to be very competitive on their purchases. The longer that period of prosperity lasts, uh, the the fewer memories survive of bad deals. Uh, there have been some astronomical amounts of money made uh, over the last few years on transactions, on purchase transactions. I mean, astronomical amounts of money that that probably should have stayed with the ownership. The ownership decided that I am not taking the risk, I don't see the value, and they sell it to a, uh, an auction company, and the auction company knows how to take those assets and turn them into something massively bigger than, than, than what the vision of the ownership is. And I think, that's, I think that's part of the responsibility of the auction company is to say to the ownership, hey, let's, if you do it right, this is what you can end up with potentially. And if you don't want to do that, then we'll buy it. But I, I, I do think that, that we will continue to see a very competitive marketplace in this industry. And I do think that we're going to see um, other companies continue to pop up who think they can do it better. Uh, than than the companies that have been around for a long time. One, I mean, I, I've been in three companies that that. Uh, I mean, I, I never thought I would be any other place than one. I've been in three, but I've seen people and companies go through multiple companies, multiple iterations over time. I've been in the business forty years. I've been in three companies, and I would still like to be in the one that I was originally. <laughs> so, as uh, with your new business as an advisor. Sometimes you may be advising people against auctions to, you know, try to sell ongoing businesses, or are you basically, they've decided they're going to auction and then they come to you? No, I I look at every single transaction as a clean slate and I figure out what is the best way to monetize those assets. Is it a turnkey? Is it, do we have to break up real estate, machinery and equipment, receivables, inventory, et cetera? And how do we, how do we, how do we approach the marketplace based on time frame, asset category, mar- uh, current marketplace, location of the assets, quantity of the assets, the liquidity of those assets? So my strategies really are developed based upon uh, those specifics of the assets that are in question and my experience over years of doing this. And, and I, I, I've been working with some people and guiding them through the process because when, when you – when you announce that you are closing a facility today, there are so many people in our industry that are offering the auction service. Everybody says, I'm an auctioneer. Well, that's nice. I never walked around with my auctioneer hat on. I walked around with my hat that said, I know how to maximize your net return. And auction sales are one particular tool that we can mm-hmm. use if it's the correct tool. But what we're finding, what I'm finding is that um, companies are looking for somebody to help clear the chaos that is created when they make the announcement. I'll, I'll tell you, when, when you announce that you're closing a facility, you're inundated with calls from 
from from people, both auction companies and paid finders to find the deals for the auction companies. And how does a company differentiate one auction company from the next? It's like it's like business, uh, resumes when you when you put a job posting out there. People get so many resumes today that are meaningless. Now what they're doing is they're limiting it. They're saying, okay, the first hundred resumes that yeah. come in will only be, will be considered. And, and that's the worst thing you can possibly do from a perspective of hiring an employee based on limiting their resumes. And it's the worst thing you can do when you're hiring an auction company. You've got to get the right auction company in there. And if you don't get the right company in there because you just don't have time to deal with all of the people that are calling you claiming to be the biggest and the best – you're probably going to miss out on having the biggest and the best, mm-hmm. and you may forego some income. Do you think that people, there's a, an innate uh, love or desire of, of people, it's human nature, to want to buy something in an auction or negotiate for something as opposed to just take a price? You see something psychological... I think it depends on the asset category. Screw machines, for sure. Um, standard tool room equipment, yeah, for sure. Um, when you get into some more specialized assets that require engineering, more um, engineering to, to suit a particular uh, need. Take hydromats, for example. I mean, we've talked about hydromats. I mean, they're, every one of those machines is set up for a particular job. So if you put them in an auction sale, you may potentially be limiting your gross realization potential unless you find the right buyer for the way that machine is set up but i but i i do believe that there are you can break people into two different categories one of the really entrepreneurialistic risk takers mm-hmm. and those people who want surety those people that want surety call up a dealer hey i want that lathe i want that automatic i want it delivered to my place and i want it up and running and i want you to warranty it and, and there is a real marketplace for that. But then you get into these people who love the auction sale. They, there's an allure. There's a psychological allure of being able to buy something, uh, potentially potentially buy something and get a bargain on it, even though that they're assuming some risk. And, and, and the auction industry has been around for a very, very, very long time. Can I ask something you alluring one question to wind us up? Mm-hmm. How much is a seat at it uh being sold from a detroit red wings uh box seat holder worth and how did you determine that all right so so we are we are selling all of the assets out of the joe lewis arena uh which has been around since 1978 we we won that contract from the city and um we have approximately 20,000 there's total 20,000 seats in there we cannot sell 20,000 seats because uh, when you divide them up, each each seat has to have an armrest. So we're breaking those into minimum of two, so that each seat gets an armrest. Interesting. And and the theory the theory behind our pricing was that we've watched this industry for a long time, and and there are some stadiums that go out of business, and they figure that the seats are worth a lot of money because there are buyers that will pay anything for them. And our attitude was. Let's, we want to sell a lot of them. We want to sell as many as we can, and we want, we want our buyers to be able to afford to participate in the history of the, the Joe Lewis Arena. So we worked with the city. We made some uh, uh, suggestions as far as price point, 
and we made it very, very affordable for buyers to come in and buy those seats. And sales are going pretty well. Right now we're selling them for $150 per seat in multiples of two because of the armrest issue. And I was there yesterday watching everybody load it out. It was fantastic. People were driving their vehicles into the, into the uh, arena, and they were having a great time. Everybody was getting out of their car, and they were uh, taking pictures and selfies in the arena with their cars. It was absolutely spectacular. Everybody's working really hard, and it's been very, very successful. Hey, everybody. First, we just want to say thank you to all of the people listening to this podcast. You guys are the hip folks, the early adopters. You make this thing worth doing. But it would be really great if you could subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, give us a rating. It'll just take a second, and it'll help other people discover it. Talk to you next week.